I can't tell you how excited I was to come when we were headed in tonight. I told Terry that I could not wait to, to meet with you all. And I don't care whether it's five or 25 or 55, just because of what we're doing. The title of this series, and this is titled not for tonight, but of this entire series, is Turning Biblical Theology into Your Biography. How do we take our theology and turn it into our, bio- our biography that we actually live? And the subtitle is Truths of Scripture That Will Change the Way We Live. Many Christians tend to sum up their faith by saying, Jesus died for my sin. Now that is a very good and powerful thing to be able to say. It's a wonderful statement to make. But that statement does not set forth a world and life view that encompasses all of life. Many Christians cannot relate their faith in Christ their faith in Jesus, to their work, to their vocation, to marriage, to family, to academic studies, to leisure, to sports, to hunting, to fishing, to food, to friends, to government, to war. They can't relate those two things. Their faith in in their just actual daily lives. Ultimately, this study is focused on answering one question. Who am I? How would you answer that question? Like, who am I? Can you answer that biblically? John Calvin wrote in that gigantic work that's titled The Institutes, said right at the beginning, you cannot know yourself until you first know and understand God. Where did he get that? Is that just a, a, a religious philosopher, a Christian philosopher? He got it from Scripture. Think about it. That's exactly where the Bible begins. The Bible does not begin with the statement that we're sinners and need a Savior. It doesn't begin with that. It doesn't begin with Jesus died for our sins. The Bible begins with God and creation. And it sets forth a world and life view that encompasses every facet. There's no part of your life that that, that that does not touch. It's the purpose of this study to examine these several doctrines in Scripture that help us understand a biblical perspective on all of life. The reason I'm excited so excited about this, is that when I was a young, when I was young, when I was in my teens, in early twenties, I was a Christian. I was a believer, but I did not know how to relate my life to my faith. I didn't understand how the Bible wove that together so that it's it's just inseparable. I came in touch with these doctrines through a a great Christian teacher, a man I call the, the prophet of the last part of the 20th century. His name was Francis Schaeffer. 
He was known all over the world. And from Schaefer and from several other teachers, I began to encounter these doctrines. They turned my life upside down. So much so, in such a way, that I've never been the same since. I wish that I had known this long before then. And so that's, that's what excites me about this. Before we go, before we, before we head into this, let's pray together. Our Father, you know that I know that I cannot teach this so that it will make any difference in anyone's life here. I don't have that ability. No one that stands behind this speaker's stand has that ability. So we turn to you right at the beginning. I turn to you right at the beginning and say, Father, teach us. I know that you're here in the power of your spirit. And it's only through your spirit and through your voice that we will learn, that we will grow, that our eyes will be opened, that our ears, will, that we will hear and know. And we pray that's what you'll do through this entire series. But specifically tonight, we pray that, Father, that's what will happen in this room. Bless this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The world's population is near, in fact, it just crossed 8 billion people. 8 billion. You're one of 8 billion people on this earth right now. That's who you are. 330 million live, I think it's 338 million to be exact, live in the United States. So you're one of 338 million people. Now, those are just the people who are alive and breathing today. How many total people have lived on this planet in the last 10,000 years? The number's enormous. In that melee of population, it's easy to say, I'm, I'm not anybody. I'm nobody. It's easy to say, I'm not significant. Astronomers now think that there are a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. And I, I can't get my mind around that. I can't envision that. A hundred billion galaxies. In our own Milky Way galaxy, there may be as many as a hundred billion solar systems. Think about that. Think about that long enough. And you are sure to feel terribly insignificant. Who am I? Lost in this great mass of numbers. So how do we see ourselves? Is our individual context that we're just a blob of protoplasm made up of so many elements from a periodic chart determined completely by chance? Do we have any meaning? What's our context? In Scripture, right at the beginning, we learn that God is the context of creation. 
He's the context of creation. Genesis 1-1 begins this way. You know, it's on, it's on your scripture sheet, by the way. But uh, it begins, you know, five words. In the beginning, God created. In Psalm 90, verse 2, we read these words. Before the mountains were brought forth, you, speaking of God, brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. So go back to the beginning. Go back before anything is created. No earth, no sun, no moon, no solar system, no Milky Way galaxy. None of those, the other billions of galaxies, no atoms, no molecules, nothing. Let me tell you, try this. Try to think of nothing. Just try to think of nothing. The minute you try to think of nothing, it becomes something. It's, it's you know, try what? How do you define nothing? How do you see nothing? Jonathan Edwards said that nothing is what sleeping rocks dream about. Genesis 1-1 does not say there was nothing. Genesis 1-1 says there's God. There was God. Go back to the beginning and there's God. God is from everlasting. Material is not everlasting. Atoms are not everlasting. Molecules are not everlasting. God is everlasting. He's the context of creation. Creation began with God. He's not only the context of creation from the beginning, from everlasting, it says. He's the context of creation, we read, to everlasting. From eternity and to eternity, everything is in the context of God. Look at, on your scripture sheet, look at Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. We jump down to verse 5, we read, He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making all things new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In this, in this picture of the end, God is bringing an old creation to a close. And we catch a glimpse of a new creation. Who brought the old creation into being? God did. Who is bringing the old creation to a close? God is. Who will bring a new creation? God will. In this picture, what does God say as he's bringing one creation to a close and another beginning another? He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter. So he says, I'm the beginning and the end. God was remembering the beginning of the original creation there in Revelation. 
As he begins a new creation, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega. People, this, it's huge. Did you grasp this? This is coming straight out of Scripture. So all creation flows from God and is flowing to God. There's a great lesson here. We did not teach our children when they were tiny and we were began to we wanted to tell them about the faith. We did we didn't begin with Romans 3.21 that says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A lot of people communicating the gospel, that's where they begin. And certainly little children need to hear that they're sinners in need of a savior. But that's not where we began. We began with the greater context of where the Bible begins. There's a, a little catechism. A, ca- a catechism is uh, a little booklet of teaching. It can be, a, a, you know, there's lots of catechisms in the Christian faith that have been put together. But there's one specific catechism called the children's catechism. And it begins this way. It doesn't begin with Jesus. It doesn't begin with you're a little sinner. It begins with, who made you? God. What else did God make? He made me in all things. That's where we begin with our children. Who made the bird? God did. Who made the cow? God did. Who made the cat? God did. Who made the dog? God did. We pointed to everything. I don't care what it was. We pointed, you know, my wife could have been baking a cake. And I would turn to Jill and say, come in. I'd know Janet made the cake. And I'd look at it and say, Jill, who made that cake? God did. God did everything. You know. And that's right. Sometimes it's a second cause, but it all comes from God. But what if God did not make them? What if you're raised thinking all these things just happened by chance? Then who owns them? To whom do they belong? We tend to say they're mine. It's my shirt, my car, my house, my wife, my husband, my child. As if they belong to us. I have them because of my genes, my power, my parents, my strength, my ingenuity. Genesis 1.1 answers the basic question of cause, in the beginning God created, of cause, of source, of origin, and of ownership. If you believe your life begins with God and ends with God, that's quite different, quite different from saying, I came from nothing. I'm headed to nothing. And there's no purpose in between. God had nothing to do with this. You think of the difference of those two paradigms. They're huge. So we begin. God is the context of creation. But the Bible doesn't stop there. The Bible says God is the context of history. 
Go back to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, what happened? God created the heavens and the earth. Not only did God exist, and he was there, but he created. In Psalm 90, verse 1, this is on your scripture sheet. We read, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. And he jumps down to verse 3. We'll jump down to verse 3. You, speaking of God, turn men back to dust. Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years are your sight. And get this, a thousand years, a millennia. In your sight, it's like a day or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away with the sleep of death. In other words, from the beginning of life to the end of life, God is involved in his creation. Do you know who wrote this psalm, Psalm 90? It's interesting. You know, we think of David being the major writer, the major poet of the psalms, and he was. But this specific psalm was written by Moses. Moses is the one that wrote Genesis. He was writing the story, the history of Israel. And Genesis begins where? Not with Israel or Jacob or Abraham. It begins with God. And there's creation. So he pictures God as this God that's active in his creation, active in history. He said, you, you bring men to life and you're there when they die. And so Moses said this. Go back to that verse 1. It's the theme of the chapter. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Now, in some translations, that word in Psalm 91 is translated refuge. But you need to know, and the the word refuge is all through the Psalms. Well, you need to know that when you read refuge in the Psalms, it's not this word. This word, the meaning is really not refuge. The meaning is home house. This is, where's Carolyn? There's Carolyn's. This is Carolyn's house. Carolyn's home. That's that's the word that's used here. Moses said, you've been our dwelling place. You have been our home. You're where we live. It's not that just you're there at our beginning. There at our end. We live in you. In Daniel 4, there's a a great battle that goes on between a pagan king and God himself. The pagan king's name is Nebuchadnezzar. Most of you have heard of Nebuchadnezzar, and there's a reason you've heard from him. He was the greatest king. Before him, there had never been a greater king than Nebuchadnezzar, just as a a ruler and king worldwide. He was a genius. He was a military strategist. He was a general uh, that conquered the known world. Uh, He was an architect. He actually did build Babylon. 
he did, it had been started, but he was the one that brought it all together. He, cre- he, he made, he was as an architect, as a builder, he made one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. He's very prideful, a great king, great leader. And he had, he, he had the inclination, like men do when they have some, do something great, to say, look what I've done. Look what I've done. Look what I've done. And God warned him about it. He would look at Babylon. And he actually did. I don't think this is on your scripture sheet. In, in chapter 4, verse 30, he says, Is this not the great Babylon I have built? And here's the key. By my might and power and for my glory. I did this by my power and it was for my glory. He didn't say, I built this by God's power and for his glory. No, it was all about Nebuchadnezzar. God had warned him about making such claims. And a very strange thing happened. Overnight, he became insane. And he wasn't killed. And he ended up out in the fields acting like a cow, eating grass. And then God made him sane again. And what did he say? Listen to this in Daniel 4.34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven, with the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? He's not accountable to man. Do you see it? God is the context of history. Nebuchadnezzar learned that the hard way. The old rabbis would write that he was the Aleph and the Tau. The Aleph is in the Hebrew in the Hebrew alphabet. It's like the Alpha in the Greek alphabet, and Tau is like Omega in the Greek alphabet. But those old rabbis would sometimes say he's the Alpha, and he's the Mem, and he's the Tau. He's not only the beginning and end, but he rules everything in between. Now, you may choose, you can choose not to believe that. That's fine. But I I wanted to be very clear that this is what Scripture says. If you want to understand through Scripture, looking through the microscope of, of Scripture and seeing who you are and who we are, this is, this is where you begin. That God is the context, not only of creation, but He's the context of all of history. And those two paradigms are vastly, vastly different. There was a movie several years ago called The Gangs of New York. Uh, very hard, hard, harsh movie. It's hard to watch. Uh, it graphically depicts a bloody time in the history of New York. It, uh, it's a story of immigrants coming to New York during the middle of the 19th century, during the middle of the 1800s. 
And it's, it's, this, it's a story of prejudice, bigotry, graft, cruelty, war, nobility. And as these, ignorant, these immigrants came to New York, they would break into gangs. And it's not the kind of gangs we usually think about. Uh, one would be an Irish gang. One would be an English gang. One would be an Italian gang. Uh, they broke off into their ethnic and national backgrounds and formed these gangs. Some of these men were drafted right off of the boats as they landed, drafted into the Union Army during the Civil War. The gangs, the graft, the conscription, this conscription, led to a huge riot. And at the end of the movie, the person telling the story and his wife, this is profound, here's what I want you they visit the graves of two great leaders of these gangs. One was a butcher, and he headed up a, a certain gang. The other was a priest, and he headed up a certain gang. And these two men fought each other to the death. They were powerful. They were well-known all over the city. Politicians sought to appease them. And the person telling the story, as they stand at the grave, they were, these two men were now dead. The man and his wife had known them and known them well, had grew up under them. And he said, New York will grow and change, and no one would ever remember that these two great men existed. It will be like they were never here. And then as he said that, as they said that, they were walking away from this small little graveyard. And they themselves vanished, faded from the picture. The director was accenting the speaker's point. They would fade away into history, and they would be forgotten. In the next few seconds, the graveyard got older and older and older. It was just covered up. New York became greater and greater and buildings and concrete spread and they were indeed forgotten. The writer of the gangs of New York is saying the past is meaningless. The present is meaningless. It will all be forgotten. Whatever you do, there's no meaning in history. Not then, not now. People, guys, that's the dilemma of modern man. Just think, if history comes from nowhere and it's going nowhere, then where can anyone find dignity? How can you answer the question, who am I? And what am I doing here? So what, what do men do? What do we do? Men latch on to money and family and power, success. This is going to give me meaning. This is going to give me dignity. This is who I am. It will define me. But in the end, it can't. Because money and family and power and success, I will die too. These things cannot give to life what it doesn't, what they don't have the power to give. So you look at this. And the Bible says, you want to know who you are. Calvin says, you've got to know who God is. 
Well, God's the context of all creation. And he's the context of history. Hmm. All right. So then, God is the context. What Scripture is saying is God is the context of everything in my personal life. Whether I believe it or not, the Bible says He's the context of my, all of my life. So let's review. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It all comes from Him. Psalm 90 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. By the way, you know, this is not written down here, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, Paul spent some time in Athens. Athens was a center of learning, the center of education. And when when he first entered the city, he would he he would say he saw all these temples, all these idols, and there were so many gods that they actually had they had a an idol built to the unknown god, to the god we don't know that must be out there. And so Paul, when they took him to Mars Hill, when he started talking about Jesus, the Son of God, and the resurrection, they took him to Mars Hill where all the philosophers gathered to talk and said, tell us about this. And he said, I'm going to tell you, you've got an idol placed down there, an idol to an unknown God. I'm going to tell you about that God. And what did Paul say? Paul said this about him. He's the God in which we live, in which we move, and have our being. Where did he got it? Got that from Psalm 90. He's our dwelling place. He says, we live and move and have our being in him. Doesn't matter whether you're a pagan living in Athens or whether you're a believer like Paul. James put it this way. This is on your scripture sheet. Look at it. James 4.13, come now, you say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Wow. Wow. If this does not shake you, you just don't understand. There was a brilliant student from China uh, attending a southern university. He had already gotten a degree in China, and he was, I think, earning a doctorate here. He was a scientist, brilliant, brilliant man. Uh, His wife was with him. She was also from China. Both of them were atheists. And um, she ended up attending, his wife ended up attending a Bible study uh, at the university. And in that same Bible study was the wife of the 
uh, Reform University minister on that campus. And she told her husband about this couple. And the husband, this uh, Reform University uh, minister, looked up the husband. They had lunch. And they talked. And they they had a wonderful conversation. And he asked me, he said, have you ever, you know, seen a Bible? He said, no. He said, well, look. He said, I'm not beating your head. I'm not twisting your arm. He said, but just take this Bible with you. You might find it interesting. Well, a few months later, he heard the man, the scientist, studying for his doctorate, had become a Christian. And he couldn't wait. He says, what, you know, and he looked, he hadn't seen him, hadn't talked to him again. And he found the man and he said, I've heard you've become a Christian. And he asked the question, he said, you've just got to tell me, how did this happen? How, how, what is it? How did you become a Christian? You know what the man told him? He's, uh, the, this minister says, it was the most unusual testimony I've ever heard. He said, I can tell you exactly what happened. He said, everything changed when I read Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. That was a paradigm that he had never heard. He had lived his entire life without the context, even considering the context of God. Think about it. In Genesis, we see the beginning of creation, the beginning of man, the beginning of marriage, the beginning of family, the beginning of work, the beginning of sin, the beginning of salvation, the beginning of nations, the beginning of Israel. C.S. Lewis had once been an atheist, an outspoken atheist. He became a Christian and uh, was one of the great intellectual apologists of the 20th century. He wrote a book titled The Abolition of Man. Uh, It's only about 90 pages long. 90 pages. It's considered by many, not just in the Christian world, but worldwide by many to be one of the top hundred books of the 20th century. Some consider it to be in the top 10 books written, most important books written in the 20th century. The abolition of man. Don't go out and try to, don't buy it. You know, unless you really want to struggle for several months trying to understand it, it is tough reading. But I'll give you the cheat sheet on it. He says, the title is Abolition of Man. He said, when you take man out of the context of God, when you put man in the context of a secular culture, a secular godless culture, it will be the abolition 
of man as he's described in Scripture. And if Scripture's true, it will be the abolition of man. People, you may not think this is important, but I'm telling you, that's what you're seeing before your very eyes. I don't care how old you are. I don't care whether you're six years old. I don't care whether you're 60 years old. Everything in the culture around you is teaching that this biblical view of man they're teaching something opposite. He's come from nowhere. He's going nowhere. Now, along the way, we're going to talk about the evidence of this and, and why one's true and one really makes sense. But I can tell you this, that what you're seeing, it really matters. And you're going to have children and you're going to bring up children. And you're either going to say to them, who made you? And they're going to say, God did. Or you're going to say, no, God did not make you. God's not the context of creation. He's not the context of history. And he's not the context of your life. And your child is going to go one direction or the other. And that gigantic mind of Lewis said, it's the abolition of our children. It's the abolition of who God created man to be. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you. Thank you for what we've heard this evening. I pray that you would lay it hard upon our minds and upon our hearts. Father, in these next few weeks, show us the beauty of who you are. Show us the beauty of who we are even in a sinful, fallen world, that man has dignity and man has a place and there's meaning and there's purpose that has to do with eternity. Father, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray.